Hi, I'm writing an article accusing you of uh, widespread conspiracy. Do you have any comment on that? No? Okay, thanks. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is August 27th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by both of my co-hosts Woo! this morning. We did it. <laughs> We're all here. We're all here. Neil got McDonald's. I did. <laughs> I don't know why that was necessary, but I guess we have to like put product placement in for some yeah. food or beverage at the top of every show. I was jealous, to be honest. You did. You seemed very upset. Very but then when I offered it to you later, you weren't as interested. Well, no. I just don't want to take someone's leftover <laughs> egg McMuffin. Sarah, well, you haven't even introduced us. I haven't. It's just taken off. I, <laughs> I don't even We're need to be here. We're already talking egg McMuffins. Yeah. So uh, I am joined by senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hello, Neil. Hey, Sarah. And 538 sports editor Jeff Foster. Hi, Hi Jeff. Hi, Sarah. You're here from Los Angeles, I assume, to, to go to the U.S. Open. You uh, wanted to see the Serena Sharapova match in person. I did. <laughs> and I didn't go. <laughs> no, that's not why I'm here. Um, but if you have tickets, I'm happy to go with you. No, I, I wish. I love the U.S. Open is really fun. I'm not going this year, but I really enjoyed it when I went I, last I, year. I don't like sitting in Arthur Ashe, the, yeah. the main stadium, if, if you're unfamiliar. I find that stadium to be way too big. Yeah. And unless you have really good seats, it's like kind of like you get out there and you're like, oh, I'm watching two people play Pong. <laughs> The outer courts are way more fun because yeah. you're right there. You're right on top of the on top of the action, and it's it's really fun. The doubles matches when you can be up close are amazing. They hit those the ball so hard and they react so fast. It's very impressive. I was I was a big fan. Um, also, I am just back in town from a weekend in Milwaukee where I was yelled at by my 11 year old nephew Mason again for my belief that video games are not sports. Unpopular opinion, I guess. <laughs> and and then he uh, proceeded to beat me thoroughly in every video game that we played. What'd you play? Rocket League is the big one that I can't. Oh, is that where you're do. like it's like, it's like soccer, soccer with, with trampolines? Cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cars. I have trampolines. <laughs> trampolines. Rocketball cars. Yeah, I think trampolines could really add to the game. I think they that's should, not fair. They add that. You're drawing dead in that matchup against an 11 year old. I mean, you're probably drawing dead in. Every Literally everything. The only thing yeah. I can do with him is Minecraft. Is that so? Is really that a competitive game? game? I, no, I <laughs> not at all. Like, that's like a Sim City type. Yeah, game. Exactly. look at my old reference. Yeah, and that's the. Did you play Street Fighter Two? <laughs> no, but that's the reason <laughs> I can. That's the reason I could hang with him because it is not competitive, and we're just. You should have blown down an old school game. You should have broken out double dragon or something i wasn't good at those games either no. to sonic the hedgehog be honest i, th- I feel <laughs> like we now see the origin of your belief that video games are not a valid sport because you're you're losing in them if you were winning in them you might think that they were i, I lose in lots of, of games that i think are sports you've never seen me play basketball but i'm not very good <laughs> being five two doesn't help a ton when i'm playing basketball Anyway, I have decided that the way I'm going to uh, hold on to my youth is just by um, playing video games with, with my nephew. And someday maybe I'll learn how to accelerate and jump at the same time. On today's show, we'll discuss Andrew Luck's shocking retirement. We'll puzzle over what Mike Trout's ringless dominance means for baseball. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. 
Over the weekend, Indianapolis Colts quarterback Andrew Luck surprised the NFL by announcing his retirement from the game. The 29-year-old explained his decision in a press conference on Sunday. I've been stuck in this process. I haven't been able to live the life I want to live. Taking the joy out of this game. And after 2016, where I played in pain and was unable to regularly practice, I made a vow to myself that I would not go down that path again. I find myself in a similar situation. And the only way forward for me is to remove myself from football in this cycle that I've been in. Uh, Come to the proverbial fork in the road. Uh, and and I, I made a vow to myself that if I ever did again, I would choose choose me in a sense. The reactions to luck were varied and immediate. Former NFL safety Ryan Clark said it was the most shocked he'd been by any sports news. On FS1's First Things First, Chris Carter contemplated whether the opioid epidemic might have played a role. I wonder how many painkillers he had to take. And did that, was that part of his decision making as he tries to go on, you know, to try to have a full life? Because for me, you know, that's one thing that I worry about being a professional athlete with all the surgeries and everything, your pain tolerance, and then with the opioid epidemic going on, was that something that spooked him and said, you know something, I can't take any more painkillers, I got nothing but respect. Nick Wright, Carter's co-host on First Things First, expressed empathy with a caveat. It's an odd situation because his career was ended due to injury, but he didn't suffer a career-ending injury. Max Kellerman on ESPN's First Take lamented that the first overall pick in the 2012 draft never lived up to his potential. You just can't say he's lived up to the hype. What we were hearing and what was telling to me is the closer the circle got to him, the more information people had about him, the stronger they held this opinion. He could be the best player of all time. He could be the best quarterback who ever lived. Retired NFL lineman Jeff Schwartz wrote an article for SB Nation chronicling his experience making a similar decision. Fellow quarterbacks Tom Brady and Robert Griffin III expressed their support for Luck in choosing what was best for him. Even documentarian Michael Moore, a longtime critic of the NFL, weighed in on Twitter to applaud Luck for his decision. And, of course, one of the most controversial opinions came from FS1's Doug Gottlieb, who tweeted, Retiring because rehabbing is too hard is the most millennial thing ever. Hashtag Andrew Luck. Neil, you wrote about this on Saturday. Explain why this retirement in particular is such a big deal. Well, I think the biggest thing is that we're talking about a quarterback here. In, In recent years, we've seen other players retire early. Rob Gronkowski retired after his age 29 season back in March. Uh, and we've seen Patrick Willis and Calvin Johnson uh, and Chris Borland and a lot of these guys, even guys that explicitly said that they were leaving the game because they were worried about the long-term uh, implications on their health of playing it further. But those guys all played other positions other than quarterback for a league and a sport that is so much about that one position I think that's why this was so jarring was especially given the fact that the league has taken so many steps to help quarterbacks stay healthy and we're seeing Tom Brady and Drew Brees and and Phillip Rivers and guys like this play into their 40s and who knows when Tom Brady will stop so at a position where you would think it would be safer than ever and there would be um, guys would feel more comfortable you know playing it for longer it it was shocking to see someone walk away now those other guys didn't have to play behind the Colts offensive (laughs) line of the past few years uh, and and we can kind of get into the 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 way the Colts have kind of handled Luck's career I mean it it really was the 
the Colts offensive line in the beginning of his career. Right. And you just look at how he started. His rookie year sacked 41 times. That's and um, the hits were high, and it was really like that his first couple years. I mean, last year they were actually better, which was part of the reason there was so much optimism around the Colts. Well, Nick Wright said that injuries ended Luck's career, but he didn't have a career-ending injury. His injuries over his short career included a lacerated kidney, broken ribs, at least one concussion, a torn labrum in his throwing shoulder, and most recently, calf and ankle injuries. Jeff, why is the idea of a single career-ending injury easier to empathize with than the host of injuries Luck has faced? I think it's just easier for the layperson to process. What people don't understand, and I certainly don't understand, is never playing football is just how much the small injuries, like, I mean, you hear stories of the NFL guys, like, when they retire, they can, like, barely, like, you know, bend down or get out of bed, and they're just, like, living in constant pain, regardless of position. Well, maybe not kickers. But um, <laughs> you should talk to Morton Anderson. <laughs> yeah, maybe kickers. I don't know. Um, but just they add up. And I think if it's totally understandable, I mean, we, we sort of compare football to these other sports, um, these, you know, they're contact sports, but they're different. You know, you're not when you're playing basketball, or you're playing baseball, you're not getting pummeled constantly. It's like a constant scrum. The toughness of the NFL. It's such a like a selling point of the NFL or something that people, fans focus on and players focus on. And for luck, it's like he's not tough enough to stay in the NFL. But does that even make sense in this league? He's been pretty tough. He's lived through all of those injuries so far. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, none of us can really kind of understand what it's like to face all of that and and try to actually perform physically uh, at, at your peak you know, we've seen a lot of quarterbacks, Brett Favre comes to mind, but these guys that go on these like incredibly long start, consecutive start streaks uh, over the course of their careers. And there's this mystique around that, this aura of like, you have to you have to kill them to get them out of the game. Uh, you know, that's and, probably and something tried. someone has said <laughs> yeah. uh, at, at, at various times. And so it's almost like playing through a bunch of smaller injuries is not only expected, but it's sort of lionized. Yeah, the, the, the image of like Johnny Unitas limping around, you know, but then leading his team down the field on a drive or something like that. It's so baked into the game of football that this is probably the first case, first high profile case of someone, you know, walking away from the game just because it had become so unbearable to deal with the litany of injuries that pile up while playing football rather than like one specific thing that caused them to be unable to play. The essay that Jeff Schwartz wrote, I found really compelling because he had dealt with seemingly minor injuries and then talked about how, you know, then coming home in the off season. Then he's on crutches because he had surgery and he doesn't really get an off season because he's rehabbing. I mean, I know people say there is no off season, but you know, he didn't, he couldn't be part of his family. He couldn't be a dad to his kids. And that is, a, that's got a way on people. Oh, yeah. And one of the things people also talked about a lot, they, um, they talked about the psychological impact of just injuries in general. We've seen athletes be prone to depression, not especially when their careers end and they can't play anymore and this thing that defined them uh, is gone, but even more so when they're injured and they're sort of in this limbo state between like they are part of the team, but they're not with the team and they're not 
playing or practicing with the team. And so I think it's a huge psychological blow to someone's identity to take when they have become associated with this for so long, but then injuries sort of take them away from that and force them to be apart from it. And then you deal with all the ways in which it keeps you from living your normal life. And and that was something Andrew Luck emphasized in his press conference was that he couldn't really live the life that he wanted to with the kind of physical damage that he had sustained. We also don't really know the full extent of his injuries. They've always been cryptic. They were being cryptic this this preseason and not really detailing. I mean, first it was a calf and then he said it was his ankle and we didn't really know the extent of what's going on now. I mean, I think it's pretty safe to assume he wasn't ready to play week one and probably wasn't ready to play this season. The one thing where I sort of understand why fans would be frustrated is the timing of the announcement that it is like we're just about to start. But I wonder if that is because he realized Oh, yeah, I'm not going to be able but, to play through this. Yeah, so like people are obviously getting rightly getting on the Colts fans for booing, yeah. um, which it is wasn't re- a good look. It was <laughs> no. reminiscent actually of the Durant yeah. Uh, injury yeah. cheering. I stand by my point is that in the heat of the moment, I give people a little bit of a pass. There are, you know, people do dumb things. You're wrapped up. Imagine if you're a lifelong Colts fan, you're really excited about this year. You're paid to go to an awful preseason game and then you see on twitter in the middle of the game that your franchise quarterback is retiring not out for the season meaning this year's probably over and your your future is probably over for the next couple of years i mean i blame the timing really for the booing not more than anything else yeah and and the thing that i think was worst of all about the timing is he's standing on the sidelines when this is happening and so to like the naked eye i think to the fans in the stadium they like see him standing there and they're just like well what's the problem buddy you know like why am i getting these rumors floating around the stadium after paying for season tickets hundreds and hundreds of dollars that you waited two weeks before the start of the season to announce that you didn't want to play anymore. You know, just to make the devil's advocate argument, that's the most charitable reading of how the Colts fans were approaching it. Now, you know, I saw some people saying, like, they should have given him a standing ovation, which they should have. And I think in retrospect, they'll regret doing that because he is one of the great quarterbacks of his era and of a franchise that has had a lot of great quarterbacks over the years, he upheld that tradition and then some among, like you were saying, Jeff, some truly bad Colts teams early on. Um, he, he had he carried some terrible supporting casts. Yeah, I think with the benefit of more time um, and, and more perspective, the fans that booed him will probably regret that. Um, but you can understand a little bit of how it happened. But I think the timing of it also speaks to how difficult of a decision it was for Andrew Luck and how much he did not want to let everyone down in his mind um, on the team that he he could have retired, uh, you know, earlier and, and made his decision. But I think he genuinely part of him genuinely wanted to and felt obligated to play this season. And he waited until almost absolutely the last second to make what he called the hardest decision of his life. You know, as Met fans, we've been watching, or we were watching the last few seasons, what David Wright was going through, which was sort of similar. I mean, young and just series of injuries. And like, you know, he kept coming out at each year and trying. And it was just like eventually reached a point where it was just sad. I felt bad for him. And the the difference there, I mean, David Wright, 
he probably could have hurt his back, uh, you know, further uh, in his life after baseball if he had continued swinging a bat. But I think it's even more amplified for Andrew Luck. Like, would they have wanted him to go out there uh, when he wasn't feeling a hundred percent and have some kind of horrible injury and get yeah. just blown up by someone and then have that be the last image of him? In some ways, it's better that he, you know, for everyone that that he goes out on his own terms like this. I also think it's, it's telling that he and his wife are expecting a baby. He's going to become a dad. And I think that's probably weighing on his mind too, whether he could, you know, be around for his family and, you know, staving off something that terrible that could happen, obviously in every football game. I think that makes a lot of sense. He's also just a little bit of an unusual NFL player. I mean, this is a guy who has a book club and, you know, the WSJ with Kevin Clark, when I was there, reported the story about every time he got sacked or he got hit, he would be like, good job, congrats, <laughs> and, like, compliment the player. So he he's doesn't, you know, necessarily fit the mold of a typical NFL jock. We talked a little bit about the fans booing Luck as he left the stadium. But, Jeff, is the media really doing any better than those fans? Doesn't the media I mean, have a— Look, I, I don't— my opinion on the media hasn't changed, which is like you have a major news event. It's just like chum in the water and everyone's out there trying to get attention. There's it's so oversaturated. And really, the way to cut through is is just to go take spill. And uh, <laughs> I'm not surprised. Does the media have more of a responsibility to shape this conversation or or are takes the best we can expect? I don't think they have any responsibility. I think when someone's on Twitter, like the Gottlieb thing, that's different. That's a personal responsibility. But in terms of shows and, you know, talk radio, I mean, it's all competitive. Well, I think, though, that's a media... take in and of itself. I know, I love it. I know. <laughs> yeah, take my own take down. Um, <laughs> I, I think, though, that because the NFL and a lot of media outlets are sort of in partnership together, that it is a difficult fine line to walk between talking about the inherent dangers of playing football and framing things in a way that doesn't discourage players from thinking about their long-term health and, and kind of casting people that do make that decision like Andrew Luck did as villains. I think the, it's in the league's best interest to pretend nothing's wrong with head injuries and to kind of continue going about its business the way that this is a league that used to sell VHS tapes about like the NFL's hardest hits. I know because I had some of those (laughs) growing up. I mean, this is the hard hitting nature of football is a huge part of the sports appeal and also its image of itself, its history, all of these things. And so the less self-reflexive that it gets, it's probably better for business right now. And that leads to sort of the the incentive to lionize players for playing through injuries that might end up hurting them in the long run. I think part of the, the reason the reaction was so varied and controversial i guess you could say was was because of the surprise nature of it i mean like we talk about we compare him to gronk but everyone sort of knew gronk was retiring yeah nobody was mad about that nobody really yeah nobody nobody got mad about that and he was coming off i mean he was uh, he was hurt uh, as usual and not coming off his best season ever but he probably could have helped the Patriots again try to defend their Super Bowl this year. And yet I don't really see, you know, Pats fans, and this is saying something for them, uh, (laughs) being all that upset about him retiring, right? I mean, I don't know if you guys have noticed anything different, but 
I haven't seen a lot of vitriol coming his yeah, way. But again, they telegraphed it. I mean, he, he flicked at it. People thought he could have done it the year prior. And I, I, if memory serves, I think Calvin Johnson also had been grumbling about it, too. So, And Tiki Barber was another one. You know, I guess that was considered a surprise. But again, it was handled in a better way. And the, the surprise, I mean, not a better way, but it was handled in a way where, like, the the public was on to it. They, they, they were prepared. They were prepared uh, to process it. And no as one was prepared to, to process it. Right. Reading it on their phones <laughs> at a yeah. uh, stadium. And people weren't even believing it. They thought it was a joke, apparently. I thought it was a joke. I thought it was one of those fake, uh, you know, troll uh, Twitter people that um, Peter King occasionally retweets and then has to apologize <laughs> and for. And part of this has to do with what you said at the beginning about this. Like, when Bo Jackson retired, I mean, he was having this major hip surgery, major hip injuries, and, and people were like, okay, that's not surprising. I mean, it's a shame because he's obviously in his prime. Mm-hmm. But I saw that injury happen in that game against the Bengals, and, you know, no one was shocked. I have a theory that because so many people have already drafted their fantasy leagues and they're mad about – so. I know, it's, but I think that's where we I, are I right now, right? I think you're right, and it's so dumb. Because we're this far along in the season, like people are mad because they have this perception about what the season is going to be and what their stupid fantasy okay, teams are going to be. Okay, just not to sidebar too long on fantasy, but this is a, like another <laughs> PSA from Jeff Foster. Do not draft <laughs> your fantasy team before the third preseason game, ever. Ever. Because that's where wait they play the, the starters. Right. Yeah, yep. wait till the last minute, because this happens every year. And There's you... always injuries late in the preseason. That's why I never draft early. Also, I procrastinate and can't get my act together. <laughs> I do think that that has something to do with it, and it's right. terrible and kind of pathetic, and we should all be better as people. But, but won't, won't someone be. please think of the fantasy teams? <laughs> yes, they're not exactly. even people Poor Andrew who Luck. have luck. They're people who have like T.Y. Hilton. Right, like, yeah, oh, exactly. That's gonna yeah, affect yeah them. wide-ranging effects. Yeah, oh, this absolutely. is going to really cut into Marlon Mack's touchdowns. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, aside from the impact on fantasy leagues, what kind of impact do we think this might have on the NFL? Neil, do you think we'll see more? retirements like this yeah we're going to see more retirements i think early in general because we've seen that in recent years as opposed to a baseline of zero guys walking away from the game because of concerns about long-term health there's like one or two every few seasons it seems like and it wouldn't surprise me that if that kind of went up over time on the other hand i do kind of think that this is a blip, an aberration, not a trend when it comes to quarterbacks, just because, like I said earlier, they have been bending over backwards to keep quarterbacks from being damaged in any way, shape, or form. And and the average length, our, our colleague Josh Hermsmeyer actually looked into this, the average length of careers for quarterbacks has gone up uh, over the past 10 years relative to you know the previous decade. <laughs> it's the Brady Breeze. <laughs> Brady, Brady and Breeze alone, but Brady I'm saying single-handedly. Brady yeah. <laughs> and Breeze and Philip Rivers and soon you right. know Roethlisberger and all these guys, they're playing longer than ever for a reason you know it's not like it's selective sampling there's less reason for top quarterbacks to um, decline and retire now in their late 30s and and 40s than ever before and you can make a lot of money I mean someone tweeted out that Andrew Luck left somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe a half a billion dollars on the table if he played you know through the end of this contract then got two more contracts, you know, that were made him one of, if not the highest paid um, quarterbacks in the game. That's not unreasonable, like, especially if you think about the types of contracts that 
Patrick Mahomes is going to get right. in, in a few years. You know, the people calling this selfish, they should think about the fact Luck could have stuck around, you know, gritted through it and sort of gone through the motions and still gotten paid astronomical Matthew Stafford-esque or, uh, you know, Kirk Cousins-esque amounts of money and not batted an eye about it. We wouldn't have said anything about it. So in some ways, yeah, he, he did a really brave thing and also left a bunch of money on the table by mm-hmm. walking away. The Doug Gottlieb tweet, I watched a clip of him doubling down on it because I hate oh. myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in this clip, he said, millennials are the me generation always thinking about themselves first. But in the context of the NFL, where like this league is brutal on the bodies of the players, it kind of makes sense to think about yourself a little bit more and protect yourself and not you know, suffer a debilitating, life-changing injury. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is in a weird way, can, uh, can I say that his point there is not all that wrong? Like, yeah, I think that he, uh, he... He sees it as a bad thing. He sees it as a bad thing. I mean, I think the realists among us would see it as being just a pragmatic thing. And, and you're seeing this not just in football, but, you know, the generation that came along after the financial crisis has had a lot more upheaval in their life and a lot less stability. And they do you know, think of themselves before the company because they know companies are going to screw them over in the end. And what company has screwed over its employees more than the NFL over the past few decades? Don't it's try to pretend you're not a millennial. Typical millennial. millennial attitude. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm joking. I know. You're making I, a good point. I am a millennial. And, and so I think that in a weird way, Gottlieb arrived at an actual <laughs> insight, but like completely for the wrong reason as they say he's so close so close Sarah and I are just bitter because we don't have a generation God, no we're you, you guys aren't Xers we are but we're no, in that weird end of X thing where yeah we're born, the, if you're X. born in the, if you're born at the end of the 70s when the economy was awful and like the birth rate went down it just there's no generation it's like, we're it's, very lonely it's a gap generation yeah it's a gap. <laughs> really sad, but we're the Oregon Trail Carter generation. babies Well, the game will certainly miss Andrew Luck. So to end, here's a compilation of Luck congratulating those who sacked him on the field. Nice hit, big man. Hey, nice hit, buddy. Oh, nice hit, man. Good hit, big boy. Good job, buddy. Good hit. Thanks, man. Hey, you're a menace out there, boy. Good job, my boy. Nah, you're fine, man. It's football, you know what I mean? Before we move on, let's have a word from one of this week's sponsors, Candid. Did you know that your teeth move as you get older? I did not know that. And if, as an adult, you want to get your teeth fixed, the last thing you want to do is wear braces. That's why I'm happy to tell you about Candid, the clear alternative to braces. With Candid, an experienced orthodontist will create a 3D preview of how your teeth will look after your treatments are done. Once approved, Candid creates a custom plan that ships clear aligners directly to you. There's no hassle of going to the orthodontist's office, and Candid costs 65% less than braces. Plus, for every aligner purchased, Candid donates $25 to Smile Train, which brings safe, 100% free cleft lip and palate treatment to children around the globe. To get straighter, brighter teeth in an average of just six months, 
Visit candidco.com slash takedown and use code takedown to get $75 off. That's candidco.com slash takedown, code takedown for $75 off. Another athlete making waves right now is Mike Trout. A week ago, Trout tied Derek Jeter's total career wins above replacement by the BaseballReference.com version of the metric with 72.4. This is so impressive because Jeter accumulated his war over 2,747 games and 20 seasons. Trout managed to hit the same number in just 1,183 games and less than nine seasons. On DAZN's changeup, Jordan Schusterman asked Jake Mintz to choose the better career. Mike Trout versus Derek Jeter. Who would you rather have? Uh, whose career would you rather have? Can we put late 90s Bernie Williams, Jorge Posada, Andy Pettit, Roger, uh, Roger Clemens, and uh, Mariano Rivera on the Angels? Then I'll take Trout. What Mintz was getting at was that the Angels aren't exactly an inspiring team. So much so that you might take the career of a mediocre shortstop over one of the greatest players the game has ever seen. Tra- I feel like you're going to get heat for that, Sarah. <laughs> I just I just slipped that in there. <laughs> you mean defensively. I do yeah. mean defensively. Okay. That's why I said shortstop. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted for Thank your you for sake. Protecting. Yeah, yeah. Help you clarify. <laughs> I appreciate that. Trout and the Angels are 13 and a half games back for the AL's second wildcard spot. Trout is on pace for yet another season that puts him among the most elite players in history, but will have only ever played three postseason games compared to Jeter's 158 playoff games. Neil, Trout chose in the offseason to stay with the Angels for the long haul, despite LA's lackluster attempts to win him a championship. Does the lack of a title so far diminish Trout's record? I don't think so because first of all you know ring counting has always been more of a thing in other sports specifically basketball uh the idea that you know lebron james and mike trout they're pretty comparable players and the idea that lebron hadn't won a championship before 2012 weighed on him immensely it was a huge you know negative on his career resume and probably still people will hold against LeBron his number of losses in the finals or his comparative lack of championships relative to people like Jordan and and Kobe Um, in baseball we we don't judge players by championships as much especially players that played more recently uh, I feel like with in the in the wild card era there's this mentality that the playoffs are kind of a crapshoot and, you know, what wins in the postseason isn't always what wins in the regular season. And fans are coming to an understanding more and more of that, like, sabermetric mindset that, you know, the regular season is a larger sample and that, you know, there's no such thing as clutch play or that if there is such a thing, it uh, doesn't show up all that measurably. Um, and so all of these factors, I think, make it not that big of a deal and will make it less of a big deal going forward, I think. But obviously, if you're Mike Trout, you would like to maybe win a playoff game uh, once in your career b- before you hang it up. I don't know. I think Neil's right. The baseball's a little different. I mean, I like you look at the NBA and like, Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing. I think their legacies were definitely shaped by not winning a title. I mean, definitely. No one, yeah. Likewise, in the NFL with Dan Marino, you know, he's, I, I think, considering what he did on the field at the time, which has put up ridiculous numbers for a long, sustained period, he would be thought of a little differently. 
um, the way maybe Montana is, is thought of. Baseball's a little different. I mean, I think it is a collection of individuals playing and individual stats are, are more in the focus. I mean, Tony Gwynn is revered for his hitting and it's not really talked about that he didn't win a title. Ty Cobb never won a title. Not a great guy. You <laughs> I was know? Gonna say, that's not, not a what good we person. hold against oh, Ty Cobb. Generally. But no right, one yeah. holds that. Yeah, yeah, no one holds that against Ty Cobb. And I the don't, whole beating up fans thing. Yeah, that's fair you know, game. Granted, he's got some other knocks on him, but it's not something that's talked about. Um, and Ken Griffey Jr., same thing. I mean, there's a lot of guys, and I don't want every sport to go the route of the NBA where you're making plays just to win a ring. I, I don't even know if it's possible in baseball, to be honest. Well, yeah, th- th- that's a great point. The NBA has almost swung it so far in the other direction where the players know that they're judged on championships, one, that they're making career decisions and team moves and things like that, specifically to try to, like, some would say artificially juice their championship counts so that then down the line when people start looking at them, they'll be like, oh, Kevin Durant, multi-time NBA champion, and they won't remember the fact that he joined a team that had just won 73 games and beat his own team in the playoffs. But that's another story. Yeah, it's not enough <laughs> that basketball, you know, the the best player in basketball tends to win the championship at a much higher rate than any other major pro sport. They're like rigging it so they can win even more it's it's crazy so i looked at the nfl the nba and wnba and the nhl and looked at the players with the highest approximate value in the nfl win shares in the nba and wnba and point shares in the nhl the players with the most of those things in those leagues all at least made the playoffs going back as far as 2015. The last time the best player by any of those metrics missed the playoffs was in 2014 when J.J. Watt led the NFL in in approximate value, but the Texans just barely missed the playoffs, which I thought was really interesting. It makes This makes sense to me in basketball because basketball is just a, a player can take over the game at any time, right? But football and hockey are team sports. So it was surprising to me that still the best players in those leagues also were making the playoffs at least. Well, I guess part of it is fewer teams make the playoffs in baseball than they do in the other sports, but that's like it's only a small It's pretty easy difference. to make the NHL playoffs. <laughs> More than half of the <laughs> You have the to go NBA, out of your way to not make the playoffs. Yeah. And the <laughs> NHL uh, make the playoffs, but yeah, no, I, I agree with you, Sarah, that um, in basketball, you can like have your best player play a role on pretty much every possession in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and we've seen guys like James Harden personally end like 40-plus percent of their team's possessions just themselves, whether by shooting or passing to someone who shot. And that's to say nothing of even on the plays where Harden didn't technically take the shot. He is, you know, having an effect on P.J. Tucker when he takes a corner three because they're so worried about Harden. In baseball, you really, like, have a small fraction of the impact. I mean, you come up once every nine batters uh, on offense, and then, you know, even if you're playing a premium defensive position and i think we could agree center field is one of those nowadays in baseball fewer balls are being put in play even like great defenders 
kind of have their uh, impact muted compared with in the past. So, like, what is a great superstar baseball player to do uh, when they want to impose their will on a game? It's not a sport of imposing wills. It's a sport of just consistent greatness accumulated over time, which is basically a great description of what Mike Trout does. But baseball defense, the defense in baseball is really the pitching. I mean, that's what's preventing the other team from scoring, and he doesn't do that. I mean, that's what makes it different. The one way Trout does affect that is he, we did a story on this, I think, last year. He is the major league leader in home run robberies. That was like the one way in which he can kind of tangibly take away a literal run off the scoreboard from the other team. But those are like, well, he, he led the league but it was he had like did he even have 10 did he even have double digits over like a four-year period he had a lot but it was not a huge number yeah i mean it was a lot because it's a ridiculous play that probably most center fielders do once or twice in their career right wouldn't it have been better for baseball for trout to have instead of committing for the rest of his career to the angels made a decision where he could go to the Phillies and play with Bryce Harper or go to the Yankees and just just win, you know? (laughs) Well, yeah, baseball would have loved that, right? But uh, there is something to be said. I do like, and you really only see this in baseball now, but there is something to be said for staying... For, with the same team for your whole career, the whole we mentioned Jeter. That's part of the reason Jeter is so revered. I agree. Cal I d- Ripken, same thing. I, I mean, agree, but like Trout is this weird case where nobody thinks of him at all. He's <laughs> he's got like you know no public personality. He's the best player in baseball, and no one ever remembers he exists. Yeah, he's this guy that like. Every summer between the months of April and September, but not October, uh, he like goes out there every day, does does stats anonymously. I don't watch those games because they're super late, uh, and he's never on, you know, in prime time. Never makes the postseason. If he does, they they don't make it further than three games, like you said, and so. It's almost like Trout is like this this uh, this mythological creature. Like, have it, uh, how many of us have seen really Trout? Does you know, Mike Trout kind of, does even Mike exist? Trout even exist? <laughs> I mean, there that's is like no Mike Trout. That's kind of the, the the attitude that I feel like most baseball fans have is like he's out of sight, out of mind most of the time, except when you look at the leaderboards in like every stat, and then you're just like. He's amazing. He's the best player. If his team was halfway decent, you should give him the MVP. Yet at the same time, Mike Trout is like not at all at the forefront of the majority of baseball fans' minds. I think obviously MLB would have loved Trout to be on to go to the Yankees. But for fans, I feel like a little bit like we're missing out as well because we don't remember he's there. We don't see his games. If he were in New York, He'd still maybe not have a ton of personality, but but he'd be written about all the time. He'd be, you know, we'd be reading about him constantly. Yeah, I mean, he, by like kind of committing to this long-term contract extension before he had to, he cut himself off from the circus. And this was by design. This was yeah. totally like Mike Trout's super evil plan to uh, to spare uh, all of us from actually being able to kind of pay attention to him. Think about the Bryce Harper free agency circus. Harper, who, as we've noted before, probably will many times again, isn't a fraction of the player that Mike Trout is, uh, got the all-time record for 
largest contract in baseball history and just created this media spectacle when he signed with the Phillies. He already was probably the biggest star in baseball, but it only served to elevate him as a sports superstar in general. Trout sort of just was like, looked at the possibility of that and was like, eh, no thanks. I'll continue to sign with this team that has done really a remarkable job not putting a competitive team together around him. If you think about Trout, if he's worth 10 wins a season, generally worth about, you know, 10 war, that's about eight wins above average. So basically, if you knew nothing else about a team and assumed that it was in every other respect average, but you add Mike Trout to it, that team is starting out at 89 wins before the season even begins because 81 wins for an average team plus eight for for Trout. So for them to be only on pace to win 76 games right now is mind-boggling. And they do this every year. They're at best a 500 team. And, And again, on opening day, they should win 89 games just bare minimum if they just put together an average team around Trout. And they've obstinately managed to do worse than that every single year almost of his whole career but especially recently they've been a little unlucky with like otani being injured but they're still getting production from otani as as a full-time hitter right just not well it's not i mean if you're basing your whole plan for the franchise around a unicorn being able to (laughs) be the one of the best pitchers and one of the best hitters in baseball while also in addition to having maybe the greatest player of all time that says something about the lack of foresight of the plan that the angels have to build a team i think it's so funny how they they do have albert Pujols, but it's just like another mega star right we're like oh yeah him he was the best player in baseball for a decade i like keep forgetting (laughs) he hasn't retired i like every time i happen to see an angel's box score i'm like oh yeah oh yeah not only has he not still playing he not only is he not retired he has 431 plate appearances for them i think it's fourth on the team and he he has played to a negative 0.1 war level so far so like he's a huge part of the problem. He's a black hole that they're just kind of dumping playing time into. And they have a lot of guys like that. If you look at the Angels roster and look at the share of their playing time that has been given to below like zero war or worse players, they have the fourth largest share of that of any team in baseball. The only teams that give more playing time to sub-replacement level players are the Tigers, Giants, and Orioles. I mean, the Tigers and the Orioles are in that same conversation, and they're intentionally putting together uh, these terrible teams. And the Giants, who knows? Um, <laughs> but but with the Angels, like that goes a large way towards explaining why they're not better despite having that built-in eight-win edge on everyone else going into the season. Did Trout make a mistake by not using the leverage of his contract? Yes. Yeah. That too. I mean, he could have gotten a lot more than what he ended up being paid, which, by the way, was uh, it broke Harper's record for the largest contract in baseball history. But if you look at what they do, these estimates at places like Fangraphs based on the war that someone puts up, how how much money they could potentially make on a on an open market, and we're talking like clo- uh, nearing in on you know a billion dollars or something like that. If he had kind of held out and and gone to the open market, now maybe that's you know overly optimistic. We've seen some of these contract estimates be you know 
overly uh, optimistic on players in recent free agencies, mm-hmm. but Trout is Trout. Maybe he made some like secret deals with Angels management to. They gave him a piece of the franchise. Yeah, or or like well, he 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 here, would he would deserve it. Right. Here's the money I'm leaving on the table. Here's what you have to do this offseason. This season, he's the third highest. Pujols and Justin Upton are making more money than him. <laughs> oh man. I mean, that's going to change next year. Right. Yeah, and Pujols and Justin Upton together, uh, they've produced a combined negative zero point four WAR for the Angels <laughs> this season. So <laughs> <laughs> gotta be one of the worst uses of thirty eight million dollars. <laughs> So Trout is deciding to stick with his team, show that loyalty, not go somewhere else. Is he the anti-millennial for for Doug Gottlieb? (laughs) Yeah, he's showing like a uh, surprising amount of loyalty to a company (laughs) or whatever. But maybe also it speaks to like it's a lot easier. I'm not saying what Trout is doing is easy, uh, but just in baseball, being a star and plying your trade with not that much talent around you, there's still not like that much physical risk to you. You can just keep doing it if you're good enough for a long time and make money doing it, even if you are leaving money on the table. Whereas Andrew Luck, to he was basically in Mike Trout's position uh, in terms of going out there, bad supporting cast, carrying a team, and... The expectations were a lot higher, and I think also the risk is a lot higher. You can't just kind of go out there and and do it for a long period of time and not expect any kind of you know long term effects from it. All right, I think that's a good place to leave that. Before we move on, let's hear a word from our other sponsor, ButcherBox. After hearing me talk about ButcherBox for months, if you haven't yet taken advantage of their offers, it's time to listen up. Every month, ButcherBox delivers humanely raised, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon directly to your door. Choose from four curated boxes or customize your own box with all of your favorite cuts. And with free shipping, ButcherBox makes getting high-quality meat with no added hormones or antibiotics easier than ever. As an added bonus, ButcherBox has a ton of awesome recipes on their website that will help bring out all the flavor of each cut of meat. This month, ButcherBox is offering new members $20 off your first box plus free ground beef for the life of your subscription when you sign up at ButcherBox.com slash takedown. That's right. In addition to all the great meat you get, ButcherBox is knocking $20 off your first box and throwing in two pounds of free ground beef in every box for the life of your subscription when you sign up at ButcherBox.com slash takedown. That's ButcherBox.com slash takedown. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, take it away. Coming up is a very special anniversary on August 31st. It will be the 20th anniversary of one of the greatest and most influential video games of all time, I'm talking, of course, about the original Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. So we talked about Tony Hawk and about extreme sports on the show pretty recently, actually. We did our X Games all rabbit hole show. Tony Hawk is worth multiple references. I clearly agree with that. I think you can't understate how influential this game was. It was not the first extreme sports game to kind of come along. There were ones before it, but at the same time, it spawned 
an entire generation. I wanted to kind of dig more deeply into this, and so I went to the uh, website called GameRankings.com. This is a site that it's a little like Metacritic in the regard that it it kind of aggregates together all reviews of a game and then sort of averages them together, puts them on a similar scale, and you get a percentage number for your trouble. I scraped data not just on Tony Hawk games, but on all extreme sports games uh, at game rankings that had at least five reviews in their database. So it's a grand total of 274 games that I looked at. Uh, And so in 1999, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater comes out August 31st. And on the PlayStation version, it receives a 93.67. That's one of the highest rated games of its type, only to be surpassed by other Tony Hawk games. So, for instance, the PlayStation version of Tony Hawk 2 received a 94.75% uh, on its reviews, and the Dreamcast version of Tony Hawk 2, which I probably played as many hours as any game. Uh, you had a Dreamcast? I did have a Dreamcast. The late lamented Dreamcast. Very Buried much, the lead there. Very much ahead of its time. <laughs> Great console until the discs stopped spinning for me and I had to put a progressively heavier set of objects on top of the Dreamcast just to make it work. That's another story. Uh, <laughs> but that version of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 which in my opinion is probably the finest game in the series got a 94.86. That is the highest of any of the Stream games that I looked up. And one of the things that I really wanted to kind of focus in on was the phenomenon of games named after people. So Tony Hawk lent his namesake to this incredible uh, series of skateboarding games. And from that point on, you saw an just a ridiculous array of athletes get their own named sports games. So I'm going to run down the list of named athletes that, in addition to Tony Hawk, got their own uh, extreme sports series. So you have Andy McDonald. He was another skateboarder, another vert skater, not as good as Tony Hawk, not as well known. But I think MTV Sports, they wanted their own version of Tony Hawk. So they went out and they uh, signed Andy McDonald to produce MTV Sports Skateboarding. It only got a uh, 47.6% review on uh, game ranks for the PlayStation version, so not quite as good. Dave Mira, uh, the late great Dave Mira, uh, BMX rider, he had many, many games named after him, seven on the major consoles in total, and they were pretty good. They got an average score of 75.3. Uh, for reference sake, Tony Hawk got a 78.8% in his career. So Dave Mira's games, they, they were made by a totally different studio, different publisher, and totally different sport, but they held their own. Here's one that I, I debated about including it, but I felt like it was so ridiculous. Greg Hastings Tournament Paintball for the Xbox. Somehow they got 74.5% at game rankings. Who's Greg um, Hastings? I guess he's a professional paintball player. I don't know. That's a Aaron? thing. I guess that's a thing. It was 2004, so it so Greg Hastings tournament paintball for the Xbox in 2004 is a very 
early to mid 2000s um game did he push the sales over the uh, over the edge like if people were like <laughs> i want to buy a paintball video game but i only i won't get it unless greg hastings <laughs> name is on it <laughs> unless greg hastings endorses uh, it uh no uh, so next up, we've got Jeremy McGrath. Uh, he, this was the one like true rivalry that I could find in this data was Jeremy McGrath versus Ricky Carmichael. Uh, both of these guys had, uh, motocross games. And in fact, I should note just for the sake of, uh, full disclosure, Jeremy McGrath Supercross 98 actually came out a year before Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. So this is the one named franchise that you could probably say, maybe influenced the Tony Hawk series and was not influenced by it. Unfortunately, Jeremy McGrath Supercross 98 got a 59.4%, uh, and generally those games were not very good. They averaged a score of 42.4% over time, whereas the Ricky Carmichael games averaged 74.9%. Basically, Activision, the same company that published um, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, they w- they went through this phase where they started making so-and-so's pro such-and-such as sequels to Tony Hawk, and so you ended up getting Matt Hoffman's Pro BM Max uh, as a result of that. You also got Kelly Slater's Pro Surfer. That one was released uh, in 2002 uh, and garnered 80.3% ratings on its Xbox release. Uh, and then you also had Matt Hoffman's Pro BMX, a number of those. And finally, you had... This is one of the best ones. Wakeboarding Unleashed featuring Sean Murray. Featuring. A, a, wake, a licensed wakeboarding game that first came out in 2003... And the Xbox version of that got 82.1%. So these games, surprisingly, were well-received. Also, a surprising number of them featured guys named Sean. So in addition, (laughs) and Sean spelled S-H-A-U-N. Sean Murray was the wakeboarder uh, of the eponymous Wakeboarding Unleashed featuring Sean Murray. Uh, But you also had Sean Palmer's Pro Snowboarder made by Codemasters in 2001. That one wasn't quite as good. It got 67.9% uh, at game rankings. But the Sean that I think is kind of the arrival to Tony Hawk, at least in terms of volume of games put out, was none other than the Flying Tomato himself, Sean White. So Sean White, he had a total of seven games come out that ties him for second with Dave Mira behind Tony Hawk, who had 42 named games 42 across. 42 games? The, the, so this counts the uh, different v- console versions of the oh, okay. same game across all the major consoles, so like Xbox, Xbox 360, PS3, etc. But Sean White, his claim to fame, uh, this is in addition to being a uh, multi-time Olympic gold uh, winner. <laughs> yeah. and, Aside from that. No, and uh, X, Games, X Games Gold. He had a Sean White snowboarding game, which was made by Ubisoft, but he also had a Sean White skateboarding game. He, he is the only person on this list to have both a skateboarding and a snowboarding game, separate games named after them. Not all of these games, only a fraction of them had licenses with certain companies, certain people to be on them. A lot of companies tried to jump on the trend of extreme sports games and put 
like ridiculous fictional uh, spins on them. And one of the best that I could find was this game on Xbox called Toxic Grind. And I want to read the description of Toxic Grind uh, for you. This is for those who don't know it. Yeah, for those who don't know this game off the top of their head, it was like, an I could, enduring I could classic. Just, I could just recite it, but I won't. Yes. I'll let you read it. In the year 2097, BMX riding has been outlawed, and a twisted reality game show is the showcase for public execution of these fugitives. Oh, so it's like the running man. Yeah. The the maniacal host of the show, Dixon Von Blass, Steve Blass related? Yeah. What's his Monet? Oh, good Uh, question. Has eliminated all but a handful of these riders and resorted to injecting his contestants with a powerful toxin before the show. Injected with a deadly toxin, you were chosen to compete through famous locations and time periods. The only way to survive is to complete objectives, avoid deadly obstacles, and pull off insane tricks, all while avoiding Dixon's henchmen. Release date, October 27th, 2002. So so they've out in 2097, (laughs) they've outlawed BMX riding, but they've allowed murder. Right. Murder is totally okay. That sounds right. But yeah. BMX riding is a little bit too much. Uh, and so the takeaway from all of this is that really these types of games, with the exception of the great Jeremy McGrath, they didn't really exist before 1999. Since then, there was a total explosion of them. Like I said, 274 of these games came out, of which 273 came out in 1999 or later. And... Uh, the era has kind of ended. We've we've kind of gone through in the last 20 years the full evolution from not that many extreme sports games to and uh, just a ridiculous glut of extreme games. And then now we've kind of come back and recentered ourselves for all of us. <laughs> I'm bringing up a game from 1987. Okay. Atari. California games. Did oh, I remember play? the California games. Look at these yes. graphics. I mean, this is not good audio, but these graphics were horrible. <laughs> And you skateboarded. You on did. A half there was a half pipe. It was that really you, like, hard to do anything. Moved at a very small. You could maybe slow pace. do a hand plant. <laughs> uh, you could roller skate on the beach. Uh, you could play hacky sack. Oh, no. That was under the Golden Gate Bridge because that was like the Northern California hacky sack. That sounds right. I think there was also that all sounds there was very also right. <laughs> frisbee where you just played frisbee. <laughs> Great game, Not California like games. Frisbee, Cal- frisbee, and then there was surfing. It's like I, less than I remember frisbee. the surfing being basically impossible. <laughs> like it, you just couldn't even get up or stay on. The it board. was no Kelly Slater's pro surfer. I love it. I think that will do it. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is still a new podcast. So if you like what you heard, please subscribe. Also, be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover us. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think of the program. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.